0: Actions have consequences. When Peter went to the Gentile centurion Cornelius and brought him the truth, Peter didn't require Cornelius to become an Israelite. Instead, Peter ate with the unclean Gentiles. Now Peter returns to the church at Jerusalem and is questioned about his behavior. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet program with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. There are times we're called to do things which just don't make sense. We'll see how God called Peter to do something which seemed to contradict his understanding of the Old Testament. Open your Bible to Acts chapter 11, and let's listen to Dr. Boyce. We're in the 11th chapter
1: of Acts, but although we're starting a new chapter, we're continuing the same old story. The story is the one that began in chapter 10 with the call of Cornelius to Peter to come and explain the gospel to him. I pointed out in our earlier studies, in anticipation of what we're going to find in this chapter, This is obviously a matter of great importance in the mind of the author of this history, Luke, the companion of the Apostle Paul, because he tells the story three times. And because Luke is an apostle, because he is being led by the Holy Spirit as he writes this book, this is obviously also something that's very important in the mind of God. Whenever God tells us something once, we should listen. If he tells us something twice, we should double our efforts to pay attention. What if he tells us three times? When he says, as he does in Scripture, three times over, there is none that doeth good, no, not one. There is none that understandeth. There is none that seeketh after God. There is none that doeth good, no, not one. In two of the Psalms and in the book of Romans, well, obviously that is very, very important. And in the same way, here in these chapters, when Luke, led by the Holy Spirit, tells us of this calling of Peter to go to a Gentile home and explain the gospel to Gentiles, as a result of that, the Holy Spirit comes upon them and blesses them so they're received into the church without, first of all, becoming Jews, obviously that is something of great importance. So we have the story once... In Acts 10, we have it a second time within the same chapter as Peter recounts what happened to Cornelius, and then we have it a third time here in Acts 11 as Peter goes back to the church in Jerusalem and has to explain his actions. What we have here is a major breakthrough, because if this had not happened, the church of Jesus Christ would not be a universal, missionary, effective, powerful church that it proved itself to be down through the centuries of church history. It would be a limited ethnic thing, as Judaism was in the time of Christ. Now, we began to look at the problem a bit, and it's important to see that, and perhaps even to review it, because it lies behind the problems that are raised in this chapter. Peter undoubtedly expected them. He understood the thinking of the Jews. He recognized the prejudices that he had in his own heart. And yet he was an apostle. He was being led by the Spirit. I think, as some of the commentators suggest, that he went to Cornelius' house reluctantly. And, And that was true of Peter, the apostle, who had a special revelation and recognized God's hand in it. If he recognized those difficulties in himself, certainly he was well aware of the difficulties that were awaiting him when he got back to Jerusalem. He took six brethren with him, and probably it was for that reason. He wanted to have witnesses that could explain what happened, and he was very wise to have done that. But at any rate, he did have a problem, and that was that the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem just didn't understand how it was possible that a Jew, on whatever grounds at all, could go into the house of an unclean, uncircumcised Gentile, and sit down and have fellowship with them around the same table, eating non-kosher food. Now, I pointed out that that is prejudice of a certain kind. To begin with, it wasn't a case of the Jews saying that God could never save Gentiles. They knew better than that. Maybe God wasn't saving a lot of Gentiles, In many periods of Jewish history, we don't always know that, but certainly he did, and they knew it. Some of the great stories of the Old Testament involve Gentiles who came into the fellowship of the people of Israel, into the congregation of the Lord, and were saved, in some cases even entering into the family tree and thus becoming ancestors of the Lord Jesus Christ. Rahab, the harlot of Jericho, was one of them. Ruth, the Moabitess, was another, and so on. The Jews understood those stories. I said it wasn't a question of Gentiles becoming saved. They could become saved. But what the Jews understood is that they had to become Jews first of all. At any rate, they had to go through certain rites that recognized or opened for them a place within the covenant fellowship of God's people. So it was prejudice, but it was a prejudice of a certain kind. Moreover, it was prejudice... It could be that based upon their understanding of the Scriptures. And their understanding of the Scriptures was not all wrong. They had been given the Old Testament, and the Old Testament contained certain strict regulations for their conduct as a national group of people. There were clean and unclean foods. That is explained very clearly in the book of Leviticus in the 11th chapter. There were certain rites they had to perform. Circumcision was one of them. Certain kinds of purifications. There were certain kinds of cooking that they had to do. There's a verse in the law that says that you're not to cook a kid in its mother's milk. And out of that, one single regulation, there grew up the whole system of kosher cooking, which is practiced today, where in Orthodox households, ones that keep a kosher kitchen, there are two complete sets of dishes, one for milk dishes and one for others, and under no circumstances can you mix those two. Well, all of that was in a certain sense grounded in the law. We recognize as we look back on it today that there were distortions involved. Certainly the law did not require that kind of rigor in what has come to be known as kosher cooking, but it didn't have a base in the law. And here were Jews who had been trained in this and who were very, Punctilious in their observance of all these things. So as I said, it was a prejudice against Gentiles and a strong prejudice, but it was nevertheless prejudice of a very special kind. And yet, though it had some justification, though they could refer to Scripture verses and say, as they undoubtedly did, all we want to be is faithful to Moses and the law, they nevertheless had a prejudice that needed to be overcome. And this is what the Holy Spirit was doing in this incident. The Holy Spirit was showing that from this time on, the members of the church were to become members of the church, the people of God, by faith in Jesus Christ alone, and that it was not necessary for them to go through any of the requirements that were necessary to become members of the house of Israel. They did not have to be circumcised. They did not have to keep a kosher house, they did not have to observe the eating of clean and the refusal to eat unclean foods. And moreover, the Jews, who were now Christians, were to have fellowship with these Gentiles who had not become Jews but yet believed in Jesus. And they were to do it in order that there might become one church, not two churches, which is obviously what would have happened otherwise. Sometimes in my reading I come across a particularly good statement of the significance of something, and I did find that in Blakelock's little book on Acts. I don't think he's overstating the change that took place in the mind of the Jews when he says this. It required a major readjustment of all thinking for a people fiercely conscious of racial privilege and stirred anew by the thought that the Messiah of promise had appeared and spoken, readily to abandon the thought that a unique national destiny approached fulfillment, to accept a reinterpretation of ancient prophecies, to admit a spiritual rendering of old promises accepted and cherished as literal and material, to see Israel melt into the church and the minority of the chosen lose identity, privilege, and special place in a global organization called for insight, faith, self-abnegation, magnanimity, and a transcendent view of God rarely found in any but the most enlightened souls. I say that's not overstating the problem, and yet it was the problem that needed to be addressed, and hence the Holy Spirit's effort to do it through the Apostle Peter. You see, when Peter got back to Jerusalem, and the brethren in Jerusalem who had heard about what had happened in Caesarea approached him and expressed their objection, they did not say, it is not right that Gentiles can be Christians, because of course they knew better than that. It was right, and it was quite proper, and the Lord had sent them into all the world with the gospel. But what they object to is what you find in verse 3. They said to Peter, not you preach to Gentiles, that had happened at Pentecost, or Gentiles became Christians because there was no objection to that, but rather you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. So you broke kosher. You sat down around the same table with these unclean Gentiles. That was the thing that really bothered them, because if that could be done, then it meant the Gentiles could come into the church as equals with the Jews without having become Jews in the first place. And you see, that's where the prejudice lay. Now, suppose that had gone unchallenged. Suppose the gospel had been presented as it was presented in Samaria, and Samaritans believed, and the Ethiopian, and the Ethiopian believed, and suppose he had gone home and had led others to the Lord, and then people had become Christians in Caesarea, and then Antioch, and all the cities of Turkey, and eventually Rome. But suppose this problem had not been overcome. What would have been the result? Well, as I indicated a moment ago, there would have been two churches, Because you see, the one place where Christians really do gather around together is the Lord's Supper. And you see, that's a supper. It may be a supper that we observe in a somewhat stylized way today, but in the early church it was a supper, among other things. And that meant, you see, Jews and Gentiles, if they were to be one church, responding to the invitation of one common Lord, had to sit down together around that table. And if the Gentiles came without being Jews first, then it meant ritual impurity and uncleanness for the Jews. And so if the problem had not been overcome, what would have happened is that you would have had two churches. You would have a Jewish church, and you would have had a a Gentile church, and the unity of the body of Christ would have been destroyed from the very beginning. Now, we don't have exactly that same problem today, but we do have it of sorts. And it's worth mentioning it up front because we want to see how Peter dealt with it. But we have to acknowledge up front that there is very often that kind of mentality within the church. We don't say that. We want to say, no, we're not prejudiced. But what we generally mean when we have a church that we're proud of and is composed largely of people like ourselves is that we're glad to have other people come and join us as long as they become like us. They have to become like us in doctrine don't want any liberals coming in sitting here, if we're conservative. Or conversely, if we're liberals, they think they're liberal, but they don't want any fundamentalists there messing things up. Or we're not against charismatics, as long as they don't carry on their charismatic behavior in our congregation. And perhaps it works the other way around. Or we're glad to have blacks join a white congregation, as long as they don't act too black. Maybe the blacks, I think they have much more understanding and are much more adaptable than we whites are at this point, of course, because they've had to be, minority, but they might on their part say the same thing. You know, we're we're glad to have the whites join us as, as long as you kind of get in with the way we do things. But you see, the point that's made here is that God takes people as they are, and they do not have to become something else before they come to Jesus. Now, it may be in certain areas that we are going to desire and work for a kind of melding of the way we do things. Certainly, that ought to be true in our theology. We have differences in theology. It's not because both are valid, generally. One of us has the truth better than the other. We want to come together on that if we can, but not in all things, certainly not in matters of style. We don't all have to be alike, certainly not matters of church organization. I don't find in the Bible it has to be one particular church organization or any of those things. We have to learn to understand that God is working in a great variety of people, and the one matters is the relationship that an individual has to Jesus Christ. Now, that's what God was out to teach these Jewish Christians, and He did it through Peter. Now, it's interesting to note how Peter handled this. Peter is an apostle, and I suppose Peter could have said, and perhaps rightly, I am an apostle. God speaks to me. God told me it was all right. And it is all right. And if you don't like it, you can just leave my church. Some branches of the church would say he was the first pope, and therefore he had a right to pronounce on things ex cathedra. But I noticed that Peter didn't do that. Peter begins in what is obviously a very humble recitation of what's happened. He lays it all out, as we would say. The text makes that very clear. As a matter of fact, in the Greek, it's even clearer. Peter began, it implies Peter began at the beginning, verse 4, and he explained everything to them precisely, very strong word, precisely as it had happened. And if anybody questioned his particular presentation of the facts, well, there were the six brethren there that had gone up with him to Caesarea and could say, and undoubtedly did say, yes, it is exactly the way Peter says. So he began to rehearse the facts. Now, this is a lesson in God's leading. Sometimes we say, how does God lead? How do you know the will of God? How do you know whether you should do this or do that? Some people say, well, you can't know. All you can know is what God says in Scripture. Other people say, well, yes, you can know. You just have animations of what you should do. Some people even say, God spoke to me and said. Now, how do you get the leading? Many different views on that. Here, notice how Peter was led and how he sums it up, because these are the elements. First of all, he begins to recount the story and he says, verse 5, I was in the city of Joppa praying. That's an important beginning point, isn't it? Peter was praying. He was in a frame of mind in which he was seeking the will of God. That is a good preface to what Peter is going to say next, because it wasn't a case, you see, of Peter simply getting a notion into his head that it might be high time. Now, if the gospel is going to move on and expand in a great way, that he should go to Gentiles. He didn't say that. He didn't even talk in terms of circumstances, as if he were saying, well, it just seems to be an appropriate time, nor was he caught off guard, as if it were the case that these people came down to see him from Caesarea, and he hadn't been thinking about it very much, but all of a sudden there they were, and on the spur of the moment, he couldn't think how to say no, so he had to say yes, and he went along with them. It wasn't a case of that. Peter said, I was praying. I was seeking the will of God, and it was while I was in that frame of mind, seeking God's will, that God began to lead in this great matter. Some years ago, when I first came to Tenth Church, I listened to a tape by Donald Gray Barnhouse on how to know the will of God, and he made The point in that particular message that God leads in three ways. And when you get all three of these things in line, then you can be sure that that's the direction God is leading. First of all, he said you have to be willing to do the will of God even before you know what it is. I thought that's very important. God doesn't give you options. He waits till you're ready, and when you're ready, then he tells you what he wants you to do. So that was number one. Secondly, he said, and this is the most important of the three, it has to be in terms of Scripture. God never leads contrary to Scripture. That's why we have to be men and women of the book. We have to know it. We have to understand the principles. And then he said, thirdly, you have to be waiting upon God regularly and at times even hourly. And if you've heard to Psalm 32, verse 8, which in the King James Version says, he will guide me with his eye. So you have to look to him to catch his eye if you want him to guide you. And that was Barnhouse's point. Now, it's the third of those three points that Peter mentions first. Here was Peter praying, trying as it were to catch the eye of God, to see the way in which God should lead. And it was while he was in that frame of mind that God did direct him. Now secondly, Peter received a revelation. In his case, it was this vision of the great sheet that was let down from heaven with all the animals in it, some of them clean, some of them unclean. No doubt, the very animals that are mentioned in the 11th chapter of Leviticus. And when he heard a voice, take and eat, and he replied, no, Lord, I can't do that because I am kosher and I've never done it in all my life, God said to him, what I have called clean, don't you call unclean? And it was repeated three times. Now, that was a revelation about food, among other things. Peter would have picked that up, and although it goes on to talk about people, which is the crucial thing, it did at least mean that, and he should have known that because Jesus' On one occasion, when he was asked about this kind of defilement from eating unclean food, said, it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles a man, it's what comes out, because it's out of the abundance of the heart that the mouth speaks. So if you're speaking bad things, it's because you have an unclean heart, and that's what's important. You need a clean heart, and only God can clean it up. And that's what he was talking about. So Peter at least should have learned from this that the age of kosher food was past. God was doing something else now. But more importantly than that, he was talking about people. The same sort of thinking that Peter had, that frame of mind by which he uh, approached eating, was now to be changed and be changed in a way that would also determine how he approached other people. It wasn't to say, as the Jews of his day said, and these Jews in Jerusalem still wanted to say, well, we Jews are clean and those Gentiles are unclean wasn't to say that because this was the time in history at this moment when God was declaring, not Peter, not the apostles collected in a body, but God was declaring, these Gentiles are not unclean, and I'm going to send you to bring them the gospel. And so God gave him that revelation. Now, we're not to expect a revelation like that today. I have friends who are strong in the Reformed faith who deny even the possibility of that kind a revelation. They do it on the grounds that God gave special revelations and miracles and other such things at a time when the Scriptures weren't given, and that the miracles and revelations were given to authenticate the messengers as spokesmen from God, and when they did speak and record these things, and we have them in the Scriptures, then all of those phenomena ceased. Now, I don't think that's true. At least I'm not willing to say categorically that God can't do those things. Are you willing to say, categorically that God can't ever do a miracle today? I'm not. I think many of the things that pass for miracles aren't miracles. I'm very skeptical about them, and I think I have a right to be skeptical about them. But nevertheless, it's not the same thing as saying he can't do them, or he doesn't do them. And it's the same way with visions. I wouldn't say categorically God can't give a person a vision. I don't know of anyone whom I would say has actually had one, one that as authentic, and that they could say, well, without any doubt, this is what God gave me, and this is the direction He's leading, although I know there are people who claim that. But nevertheless, I won't say categorically that that can happen. But the point I want to make, you see, is that it, it does happen. It happens very rarely, and the way God does guide us today is by His Word. So what you have here, you see, in these first two things that Peter talks about, Peter praying on the roof... And the middle of the day and God giving him a revelation is exactly parallel to what we have in our times of prayer and Bible study. We pray, we open our hearts to God, we ask for His leading, and then we study His Word and we see what He says. And we wait upon God to take that Word and in a personal way, by the power of His Spirit, apply it directly to our hearts. So Peter, you see, is he defends his action before the Jerusalem Council Is not saying anything very different from what we should be able to say if someone says to us, Well, why have you done so and so? We should be able to begin by saying, Well, we prayed about it, we searched the Scriptures, and we believe that this is what God teaches and it applies to me in this way. Now, the third element is circumstantial or Circumstances. As Peter points out, that it was while he was praying, immediately after he had received the vision, suddenly these men from the house of Cornelius were at the door. Now, think of the timing of that. God is the God of circumstances. We sometimes say, oh, just as mere circumstance, It just happened that way. But God is the God of circumstances. This is a world He rules. We may not always see the purpose in the circumstances, but God does have a purpose when these things happen. And here were these three men. Think what would have happened if these three men had come an hour earlier. Was a three-day journey. It could have hurried, and gotten there an hour too soon. Why, if they had, Simon, who was a Jew, Simon the Tanner, would have said, don't come in here. It's a Jewish house. You can't come in here. You come in here, you'll contaminate it. And so they sent him away. Suppose they'd come a day later. It's hard to speculate on what might have happened if they had come a day later, but I can imagine a day later, the force of the vision might have begun to fade just a little bit from Peter's mind. And Peter, might have found himself saying, well, you know, maybe I just uh, ate something bad for breakfast and I kind of had a strange hallucination there while I was up on the roof in the heat of the day and uh, get those Gentiles out of here. I don't want to get in trouble with my brethren in Jerusalem. But It didn't happen that way. It happened exactly after the vision. It had come three times. Here were three men. Peter recognized the hand of God in the circumstances. Now, Notice the order. First of all, he had been praying. Secondly, he had had the equivalent of what we would call Bible study, and it was after that that the circumstances fell into place. You see, sometimes in the Christian life, we want to depend on circumstances, and I know people talk about the leading with God in those terms. They say, well, you know, fell out this way. God must have done it that way. Well, you know, you can read circumstances in different ways. And sometimes things come into our lives and we say, well, they're circumstantial leading, but we have a way of interpreting it to make it what we want it to be. And you see, it's not safe to do that unless you have, first of all, been praying about it and studying the Bible. And then when circumstances come along and conform to what you feel that God is leading, when they link up, then you say, well, now it does seem that this is confirmation of what God is doing in my life. And so, in the third place, Peter mentioned that. Now, in the fourth place, he brought along the others. He had six of them, and undoubtedly one of them there is witnesses. Now, the Old Testament law this is a point that shows how seriously he took this and how serious he recognized the problem was. The Old Testament law required two or three witnesses for everything. Now, Peter figured, well, be safe, I need at least three. And to be doubly safe, I better have six. And so he brought along six of them. Let me say that that is a valuable thing when we're talking about the will of God. You know, when we talk about a call to the Christian ministry, we talk about a call in a number of ways. The individual has to have a sense of call. You can't tell somebody else what the will of God is for them. They have to have it. So we speak about an internal call, a sense of call. And then we speak, secondly, of confirmation by gifts. Somebody says, well, I called to be a preacher, but they're so shy and stammering they can't even speak. You say, well, you know, brother, maybe you should rethink that. It doesn't seem like God has given you the gifts that are necessary for that particular calling. So there's a confirmation by gifts or circumstances, circumstantial type things. And then the church also talks about something else. It talks about the confirmation of the sense of call by the will of the Presbytery. And that's what ordination is all about and why a minister goes through the kind of trials and tests that are necessary before he's approved for ordination. There has to be a sense that this is not just a sense of individual call, though that's important and necessary, but somehow it's confirmed by the other members of the congregation, the leadership, that are concerned about this and are praying through it with the individual. Peter had gone up there, and if Peter had been the only one who saw it that way, then Peter should probably have said, well, I better think this through again. But it wasn't that way. He had six of the brothers with him. They all saw it the same way, and so he had the value of this kind of united confirmation. The fifth thing I notice is that when he got there, he found the ground prepared. Now, again, that is circumstantial, but it meant something to Peter because he talks about it. talks about how they were ready and willing and waiting to hear the message that he brought. They wanted to hear the message of salvation. That's what the angel had told them. The angel, you see, had plowed the ground. And so when Peter got there and began to do what he believed now God was leading him to do, he had confirmation in the hearts of those to whom he spoke. It doesn't mean, of course, that if he had gone and he hadn't had a hearing, that therefore he wasn't led by God. Sometimes God leads us into extremely difficult situations. Sometimes missionaries in difficult areas of the world run up against that, and they spend years and years and years before they see a initial convert to the faith. It doesn't mean just because you have difficulty that God isn't leading, but if when you arrive you find that the ground is prepared, that's obviously great confirmation of God's leading. And certainly Peter was rejoicing in that. Peter knew in Jerusalem the difficulty that he and the others had had when they were trying to preach the gospel to hearts that were unprepared. And they were preaching the gospel to those like the members of the Sanhedrin that were dead set against Jesus of Nazareth and his ways, well, that was difficult indeed, and they not only rejected them, they even beat them up because they were so angry at what they were doing. And Peter did it, but that was hard. But here, when he came to the household of Cornelius and found them all waiting and ready and eager, well, that was confirmation of a major order. And then notice also in the sixth position the results When he began to preach to them, they not only heard it, but God blessed the message, and they believed, and God showed their acceptance by sending the Holy Spirit and demonstrating the coming of the Holy Spirit by the fact that these Gentile brothers began to speak in tongues exactly as the apostles had done in Jerusalem months ago on the day of Pentecost. That was the important thing, you see. Their experience there in Caesarea was exactly the same as the experience of the very disciples of Jesus Christ in Jerusalem in the earliest days. If it had been different, Peter might have said, well, God's blessing, but in a different way. If it had been less, he might have said, well, yes, God is saving them, but they're obviously going to be a lower order within the church of Christ. But he didn't do that. Peter was very impressed that the Holy Spirit came upon them. I would suppose, although it doesn't spell out the detail, even with the sound of a rushing mighty wind and maybe even the tongues of flame from Pentecost. But at any rate, the experience of speaking in tongues, and in this case, because it refers back to Pentecost, it must mean that they spoke in other languages, just as happened at Pentecost. That that was sufficient in Peter's mind to convince him that God had accepted these Gentiles without any qualification whatsoever. And so he said to the brethren who were there, the six Jews who had come up with him from Joppa, is there any reason why we shouldn't baptize these? Look, God has accepted them. And not one of those who were there in the presence of this powerful outpouring of the Spirit of God had the audacity to say, well, they aren't circumcised. Let's wait and get that over with, and then they can be baptized. Because you see, God had already accepted them without the right of circumcision. And then... Notice, I've given six things. Here's the seventh. When Peter gets to the end of this, he says, Then I remembered, verse 16, what the Lord had said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. In other words, he began with Scripture, and now he's ending with Scripture. He had been led by Scripture as he prayed over it, and had been confirmed in his decision by the circumstances and the prepared hearts and the result, the blessing that God gave. And then when it was all over, what had happened led him back to Scripture. And he said, oh, yes, and it's just what Jesus was saying. You know, you ask the question, where is it that Jesus said that? You look in the Gospels, I'm not sure you'll find it, but I'll tell you where you find it word for word, and that's right at the beginning of the book of Acts because it was part of what Jesus said to them there those days between the resurrection and his ascension into heaven. Verse 5, John baptized with water, but in a few days he will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Peter didn't have the Bible as we have it. It was only in the process of becoming to be written, but these were the things that he had heard. These were words that Jesus spoke, and they came into Scripture later, you see. And that's the way he's thinking, and it's the way we should think. Well, the results were good. Verse 18, when they heard this, they had no further objections, and they praised God, saying, so then God has even granted the Gentiles repentance unto life. And notice two things about that. First of all, they were convinced, they were convinced in their minds that this was of God. Peter didn't try to roll over them by virtue of his authority, or just bypass the kind of questions they might have had. He dealt with them, explained the situation, and they were intellectually convinced And then, because they were convinced, they praised God, because although it might not have been what they had preferred, and it certainly was not what they had expected, it was nevertheless an evidence of the working of God. And if God was working, then God was to be praised, and they didn't want to be left out in praising Him. I wish the story ended in an utterly positive way, but unfortunately it didn't. They were convinced but only for a time. They were united, praising God, but not for long, because later on a party began to grow up in this Jerusalem church that said, all of that is mistaken. If you let down the barriers that way, pretty soon the Jews are going to be coming Gentiles, and they're going to start acting like the Gentiles. We all know how the Gentiles act. We don't want that, so we have to set up the barriers. We have to insist that these Gentiles, first be circumcised and come under the law of Moses and do all the things that we've been doing as Jews for centuries. It had to be battled out. Acts 15 tells about it. The whole thing's going to come up again. And Paul fought the battle again in Galatia, churches of Galatia, Asia Minor, and, and so on. It just plagued the church because prejudice dies hard. And we find it very difficult to believe that God can accept other people as they are, without them, first of all, becoming like us. And yet he does. You know, isn't it good he does? Because if he didn't, you and I wouldn't be here. Well, we would have been excluded. The Jews would have had the gospel, we wouldn't have had it. But Because God does not show favoritism, we are in. And we're in, and God does not show favoritism, and that's why we're in, then we must not show favoritism ourselves. We must reach out to others. We must not count it a threat when God brings into our fellowship somebody who, from our perspective, just doesn't seem to fit because they fit with God. And it's God's judgment in the matter that counts and not ours. Let's pray. Our Father teaches from these stories what it is to be open to others teach us what it is to seek your will and find it, and grant for those who may be struggling, as many are, with some great decision in their lives, that they might have guidance from this leading that you gave the Apostle Peter, and through that leading and the application of it in their own experience, might see the way clearly and move in it and find blessing. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: You're listening to the Bible Study Hour with the Bible Teaching of Dr. James Boyce, a listener supported ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. The Alliance exists to promote a biblical understanding and worldview. Drawing upon the insight and wisdom of Reformed theologians from decades and even centuries gone by, we seek to provide Christian teaching that will equip believers to understand and meet the challenges and opportunities of our time and place. Alliance Broadcasting includes the Bible Study Hour with Dr. James Boyce, Every Last Word with Bible Teacher Dr. Philip Ryken, God's Living Word with Pastor the Rev. Richard Phillips, and Dr. Barnhouse and the Bible featuring Donald Barnhouse. For more information on the Alliance, including a free introductory package for first-time callers, or to make a contribution, please call toll-free 1-800-488-1888. Again, that's 1-800-488-1888. You can also write the Alliance at Box 2000, Philadelphia, PA, 19103. Or you can visit us online at Alliancenet.org. For Canadian gifts, mail those to 237 Rouge Hills Drive, Scarborough, Ontario, M1C 2Y9. Ask for your free resource catalog featuring books, audio, commentaries, booklets, videos, and a wealth of other materials from outstanding Reformed teachers and theologians. Thank you again for your continued support and for listening to the Bible Study Hour.